All right, if you'll stand with me. Pastor Bruce has already done the previously on the epic uh, beginnings uh, in Genesis. So I will just tell you we're going to start in Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. And Pastor Bruce will be preaching on marriage this morning. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, you can find it near the beginning on page 2. Again, we're in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave, gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Let's pray. God, as we reach into your word this morning, we just pray that you would open our hearts, God, that you would soften our minds to your truth, Lord, that as Pastor Bruce speaks, uh, Lord, we would just allow it to reach in and uh, affect us. God, may the truth just plant a seed in us, um, God, that we have a perspective on uh, you as our creator, um, and God, on uh, relationships around us, and Lord, this morning, would we just take a look at marriage uh, through your eyes, in Christ's name, amen. One of the more celebrated weddings in recent history just took place three weeks ago when Prince Harry and Meghan Markle were married this last May 19th. The wedding actually took place in St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle in the United Kingdom and was attended by royal family, many, many friends and guests and celebrities and as you might guess. As you might also imagine, the royal wedding racked up a very royal price tag. In fact, an estimated $45 million was spent on this recent royal wedding. The wedding dress that Meghan wore cost around $135,000. Over 18 million people in the United Kingdom watched the wedding on TV. And right here in our country of America, over 29 million people saw the wedding. And the global audience was estimated to be in the hundreds of millions of people. How many actually watched the wedding? You got up early that Saturday morning and watched it. Yes, my wife included. She watched it as well. She asked if I wanted to. I said, no, I'm going to work. No. And so I did not watch the royal wedding, but I do know this. There has never been another wedding quite like the very first wedding here in Genesis chapter 2. Other than the animals in the garden, there were no guests at this wedding. And rather than a ring, Adam gave Eve a rib as a token of his love. And his vows here are the very first recorded words from man in the Bible. God himself gave the bride away. And God himself conducted the wedding ceremony in the Garden of Eden. And so this first marriage is the crowning blessing of God's goodness to mankind in creation. And what we see here in Genesis 2 is from the very beginning, marriage is God's idea. It is not man's. In fact, the very concept of marriage comes from God as a blessing or as a gift to mankind. So it's not surprising then that what we think about marriage is precisely where Satan attacks so fiercely. Now in recent years, we have heard an awful lot about what our culture says and what our culture thinks about marriage. But the question is, what does God say about marriage? As the creator, what is God's vision of marriage. 
Now, my purpose today is rather simple, and that is to show you God's vision of marriage from the very first marriage here in the Garden of Eden. And I pray that you will leave here with a deeper conviction about God's vision of marriage, as well as a greater commitment to stay married if you are already married. Now, the question I want to begin then with is, how do you view marriage? What is your vision of marriage? And whether you realize it or not, everyone has a vision of marriage. We all have our concepts and our idea of marriage, what it looks like, how it works. And we take that concept, those ideas, that vision with us into marriage if God so allow us to be married. So what is your vision of marriage? But more importantly, bigger than that question is this question that's in your notes coming up on the screen. And that is, does your vision of marriage match God's vision of marriage? Or is there a gap between the two? That's what I want us to think about this morning as we look at the very first marriage. And here's what we see in God's vision of marriage. Marriage is a gift of God for the very glory of God. Marriage is a gift of God for the glory of God. And whatever thoughts or conceptions you have about marriage at this point right now, if it is anything less than this vision, then it falls woefully short of God's vision of marriage. This is the core problem in much of our country. Our vision of marriage is way too small. We have reduced it to something that we can manipulate for our own happiness. This is a very human vision of marriage. Listen to what John Piper writes in his book, This Momentary Marriage. And the reason he says momentary about marriage is because marriage is temporal. It's earthly. There is no marriage in heaven. And so it is momentary for this lifetime. Listen to what he says. There has never been a generation whose view of marriage is high enough. The gap between the biblical vision of marriage and the human vision is and always has been gargantuan. Listen, here's the deal. We, we as his creation, we cannot know what marriage is without learning it from the one who created it. And right here in the Garden of Eden, we see that marriage is a gift of God for the glory of God. And in light of the biblical vision of marriage, it only makes sense then that God would seek to protect and preserve his gift of marriage for mankind against the attacks of Satan. And God does that right here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, when it says marriage should be honored by all. That is lifted up, upheld, as a gift of God from the glory of God, or for the glory of God. And then he goes on, the writer of Hebrews says, And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And so clearly, God is calling us to something here. He's calling us to uphold his vision of marriage as a gift of God for the glory of God. And so let's unpack this. And here's what I want us to see in this passage here, that the first marriage here in the Garden of Eden is God's vision for all marriages. So what is God's vision of marriage? Notice that, number one, foundationally, marriage is a gift of God. It is a gift of God, so let's honor it. Genesis 2 makes it clear that marriage is a central part of God's plan for humanity. Now, I realize while not everyone will get married and not everyone should get married, the fact remains that most people will be married at some point in life. Most people will experience God's gift of marriage. Marriage is a blessing from God to mankind. And as we saw last Sunday, the blessings of God are only enjoyed within the boundaries that are set by God. We learned that last Sunday here in the Garden of Eden. And now we come to another boundary, if you will, that God sets for mankind, for the good of mankind, for the glory of God. So what are 
is God's boundaries for marriage. Notice this in your notes. Marriage is one man and one woman joined together as husband and wife in a lifelong covenant. Now, this boundary for marriage isn't just something that I am making up. It's not something that our church is making up. This boundary is based on God's word right here in Genesis 1 and 2, which shows us God's vision of marriage from the very beginning here in creation. Look, go back here, and it's in your notes, these verses are, to Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, and it tells us, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And now we come to uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, and it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This, right here in these two verses, this is God's boundary for marriage. One man, one woman, joined together as husband and wife in a lifelong covenant. That is his vision, his boundary for marriage. So what about Jesus? What did Jesus think about marriage? What did he say about marriage? Well, Jesus actually reinforces God's boundaries for marriage when some Pharisees came to Jesus with a question about divorce in the Gospels. In fact, you read about it in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, and these Pharisees come to Jesus and say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus' answer gives us insight. Listen to what he says in verses 6 through 8. But from the beginning of the creation, so right away Jesus is taking us back to this point we're studying here, we're seeing in Genesis 2. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. And so did you notice Jesus quotes Genesis 1.27 and he quotes Genesis 2.24 to answer the Pharisees' question. What this implies, what this means, is that for Jesus, the matter is solved conclusively by going back to the beginning of creation for a vision of marriage, for a definition of marriage, for the boundaries of marriage. And when quoting God's word in Genesis, Jesus does not say, oh, those verses are so yesterday. Those verses don't apply to us anymore. We're now over here. That was in creation. And things have changed. Culture has changed. Jesus doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say we've moved on. He doesn't say we now know better. No, Jesus believed what God said about marriage at creation he believed that. He reinforces it now here in the Gospels. So both, what we see is both God and Jesus make it clear that the boundaries for marriage is one man, one woman, joined together as husband and wife in a lifelong covenant. Therefore, the implication of this is this. Any distortion any twisting, any redefinition of God's boundaries for marriage dishonors the biblical vision of marriage as a gift of God for the glory of God. Ronald Sider writes in an article in Christianity Today, and I quote, listen to what he says, this cannot be understated. Again and again, the Bible affirms the goodness and beauty of marriage between one man and one woman, and at the same time, it consistently condemns the immorality of sexual acts, both heterosexual and homosexual, that do not honor the bond of marriage, of marriage covenant. Now, in a culture like ours, where everyone lives by their own rules, defines what life is for them. In other words, in a culture where autonomy reigns, I recognize that God's boundaries for marriage is a hard thing for most people to accept today. But oh, how desperately and with all compassion, we as Christ followers need to declare what God says about marriage. 
And we, as Christ followers, we need to uphold his vision of marriage as a gift of God for the glory of God. This first wedding in the Garden of Eden, folks, is still God's vision for all marriages for all times. Let's look at the very first wedding. It's a garden wedding. It's a beautiful wedding. And what we see in this wedding is God is doing everything. God is doing it. God is performing it. God is conducting it. Notice this. Number one, God recognized Adam's need for a wife in marriage. Stamped all over this garden wedding is this continuing theme of God's goodness and God's generosity toward mankind. So we begin, listen, stop for a moment, pause, hit the pause button. The foundation here is what? God is good. God is generous. God is not against man. God is for man. God created creation for humanity. God gave Adam and Eve the garden for them. God now creates marriage for them. God is for us. God gives marriage as a gift for us. He alone, as the creator, gets the right to set the parameters and the boundaries for what it is. And so all across this is this continuing theme. God is good. God is generous. And the wedding day actually begins with a huge need. Even in paradise, something was lacking in Adam's life. A wife. Notice what God said of Adam in verse 18. It is not good that man should be alone. Now, that's rather startling, especially if you've been with us up through, all through this series up to now, because everything up to this point in creation has been called what? Good, 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 good. But now, for the very first time, we find an unknown concept. God sees something that is not good in the garden. As one commentator points out, not good here is strong language. It indicates not only the absence of something, but of substantial deficiency. So what did God see that is, quote, not good? God sees that Adam is what? He's alone. Now, what this means for us is that solitary fellowship with God, even in the garden, is not God's plan for mankind. And when I mean solitary fellowship, that is you trying to have fellowship with God all by yourself. God doesn't want mankind living in a cave, trying to have fellowship with him in isolation, alone. God is saying that's not good. So this idea that we now can somehow worship God, have fellowship with God, even in a population of 7 billion people, apart from his local church, in isolation from his local church, God is rooting that here and telling us already that's not a good thing. That's not a healthy thing. This is why whether you're married or single, life with God is lived out in community with other Christ followers, not in isolation. Now what's interesting is that there is absolutely no indication in these verses that Adam came to God with this need. Adam's not in the garden and all of a sudden, God, I'm all alone here. I have a need for a wife. No, Adam seems to be oblivious to this need until God showed him that it was not good for him to be alone. Now, what does alone mean in the context here of this garden wedding? The answer is found in God's provision for Adam when he says in verse 18, I, that is God speaking, I will make him a helper comparable to him. Some of your translations may say a helper suitable to him, a helper who is fit for him. We, though, here's what we do. We read our modern understanding of loneliness into the term alone. And then we deem Eve's purpose to provide companionship to Adam. That's her sole purpose. That's all God created her for. Now, it is true, while Eve certainly provides companionship to Adam, just as Adam provides companionship to Eve, 
there is way more to it than just that. In other words, Adam's need is more than just companionship. You see, God saw that Adam was unable to do something. He's unable to fulfill a task that God had given to him. You're like, what task? The task we learned about last Sunday. The task that God had given to Adam in the garden. What did God say his task was? To tend it and to keep it or to guard it. And God's like, you know what, Adam? You can't do this all on your own. You can't do this by yourself. And thus, in doing that task, in essence, what he's doing, he is ruling over creation. And God says, Adam, you need a partner in marriage who is complementary to you to help you and to assist you in fulfilling this task in the garden, and by doing that, ruling over creation, which we find the mandate back in Genesis chapter 1. Now, God said, Adam, you need a helper comparable to him. And the question is, what does that actually mean? A helper comparable to Adam. Well, this word helper suggests that she, and we're talking about Eve here, obviously, is to assist or aid Adam in the God-given task in the garden, and thus their purpose of ruling over creation as God's representatives. The word helper, get this, this is awesome. This word helper here is the same word used to describe the Lord God over and over and over again in the Old Testament when it says things like, the Lord is my help. The Lord is my help. And so helper was often used to reference God's aid in Israel, against Israel's enemies. And Moses referred to God as his helper who delivered him from Pharaoh. And so a woman's role in marriage, listen to me, women, it is a beautiful picture of God coming to the aid and rescue of man. And that's what Eve is doing here for Adam. This word comparable, it means she is complementary to the man in a way that the rest of creation was not complementary or comparable or suitable to Adam. This is why at the end of naming all the animals, which we'll get to here in a minute, in verse 20 it says, but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. In fact, this Hebrew word for helper, it literally means, get this, matching opposite or like opposite. Like opposite. And you're like, well, how's that possible? I mean, how can you be both like and opposite at the same time? Well, you can if it's a compliment. For example, take a puzzle. Two pieces of a puzzle fit together not if they are what? Identical. If they're identical, they don't fit. On the other hand, they can't just be different in general. They have to be comparably different. They have to be Matching opposites. They have to be like opposites. They have to be, in other words, complementary. And we understand this fact, this truth, biologically, when a husband and wife have sex in marriage. So this phrase that Moses now uses for the role of a wife, helper comparable, let me tell you, ladies, in women, I mean in men too, we all need to understand this, it beautifully, significantly captures the woman's role and dignity in marriage. God declared that help was on the way for the one who would be both like and unlike the man. One whose corresponding differences would now make it possible for Adam to do what he could never do on his own. 
And so in this manner, in this context, the wife is called to come alongside her husband and help him in this grand task of ruling over creation as God's representatives. After all, both husband and wife are created in the image of God. Both have equal dignity and value in God's eyes, and yet different roles within the relationship. While the man was oriented to the task of ruling in the garden, the terminology that's used here, helper comparable, suggests that she is oriented first to the man, her husband, and not to the task in the garden. This, in turn, what it does, it sets up the priority in her relationship. First, her to her husband. That's her priority. And then the garden. And you say, how does this play out in real life? In other words, today, wives, it's first to your husband and then your home and your children. That's the priority. In our culture here in America, we have it to where the wife's first priority is almost always to her children. Above and beyond to her husband. That causes issues and problems in the home. And we see that all the time. Here in Genesis 2, we see the first indicators of God's desire now to give men the authority to lead in women the complementary role of helping and assisting in marriage. And it's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's elevated. And what we see throughout the rest of Scripture is the husband's leading and the wife's helping is the very shape of the marriage relationship and not just one little aspect of it. In other words, if you as a husband are called to lead your wife and you as a wife are called to help your husband, then this calling is going to affect every aspect of your married life. It's not just going to affect quote, important decisions, but it will pervade all areas of your married life. Finances, parenting, sexuality, communication, you name it. And so when it comes to this first wedding, God is the one who recognized Adam's need for a wife. But as we already said, Adam is still oblivious to it. So, number two, God showed Adam his need for a wife in marriage. Now, at first glance, these next verses don't seem to fit in a wedding ceremony. But God was preparing Adam for marriage. You might call this Adam's premarital counseling. Look at what it says in verses 19 through 20. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And so when you see this animal parade, and it's like, where does, why, this doesn't fit with a wedding. It has its place. It has its purpose. God has a purpose in parading the animals before Adam. God brought all the animals to Adam so that, one, he could name them. And there's significance in that alone in Adam naming the animals here. Because this naming demonstrates that Adam has authority, that Adam has dominion over the animals. Of course, this naming also has another purpose. It also showed Adam that the animals had a corresponding partner, but there was none that corresponded to him. So in the process of naming all the animals, seeing them pass before him, Adam discovers something. The light bulb goes off. Whoa, I'm the only one here who doesn't have a helper comparable to me. And so this is kind of God's way of saying, look, Adam, there's nobody out there like you. You need someone who is your like opposite, your matching opposite, to help you in ruling over creation. So what does God do? God now sets out to provide that special someone for Adam. Which brings us to point number three here. God provided a woman to be Adam's wife. Now what happens next is simply remarkable. In fact, it's rather unbelievable. It's amazing. It's incredible. As God performs divine surgery, the very first surgery in creation here on Adam. Look at it again in verses 21 and 22. 
And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now, a couple observations here. Note that Eve is made from Adam, not from dust of the ground, which is different than how Adam was created. Notice also another observation. Eve is made from Adam while Adam is doing what? He's asleep. He's under divine anesthesia. He's out of it. He doesn't have a clue what's going on right now. And there's a purpose for that. This means Adam had nothing to do with Eve's creation. This also means that Adam can never take credit for her creation. Eve, in other words, is a gift of God to Adam. Now, let me just, a little side note for us men here. All of our wives are a gift from God, and we shouldn't complain about the gift. I could go on, but we don't have time. I like what Matthew Henry writes many, many years ago. The woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And then like the father of a bride, God brought Eve to Adam to be his wife. So how do you think Adam responded to all of this? Just as you would expect any man when he sees his beautiful bride for the first time. Adam shouted out in euphoria in verse 23. He wakes up from his sleep. He takes one gander at his bride, and he is amazed. He is in sheer euphoria and ecstasy, and he shouts out, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has been taken out of man. And so his bride, Eve, was stunning in every way you can imagine. She was perfect in body and in soul. She's the crowning glory of all that God has created, for she is created last. And when Adam sees she's the one for him, he rejoices in God's provision. Adam's shout of joy, let me tell you, it echoes down to the present day, proclaiming God's gift of marriage. And it's Adam's voice of ecstasy as it fades. God's voice of authority now thunders as he pronounces Adam and Eve husband and wife, which brings us to this fourth point. God spoke the design of marriage into existence. At this point, God declares his grand design of marriage for all peoples, for all times. Here's what I mean by that. Marriage is a God-ordained institution that transcends all cultures, for all peoples, for all times. God's vision of marriage here in the garden is still God's vision for all marriages. Moses writes now in verses 24 and 25, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This is the foundation. This is the, the design for all marriages. One man, one woman, joined together as husband and wife in a lifelong covenant. And this marriage covenant requires something. In fact, it requires four things. It requires leaving and cleaving and intimacy and transparency. The marriage covenant is so profound, so sacred, that a man is to actually leave his father and mother, which, which Adam has neither of at this point, never did, but this is an application for all the rest of humanity, and he's to leave and cleave to his wife. 
And this leaving and cleaving implies faithfulness. It implies permanence. It implies loyalty to your spouse. These are actually covenant terms in the Old Testament. When Israel forsakes God's covenant, she, quote, leaves him. And when Israel is obedient to God's covenant, she, quote, cleaves to him. So already, God is telling us something here in creation, that marriage is a covenant simply through the use of this covenant terminology that you trace through the Old Testament. Now, just let this sink in for a moment. Marriage involves leaving and cleaving. A newly married couple is wise, oh, wise, so wise, to establish independence from their parents emotionally, physically, and financially and establish their marriage as the primary relationship. In marriage, your loyalties and your priorities shift. They change. Before marriage, they were primarily to your parents. But in marriage, they are primarily and first to your spouse. And so many marriages fell at this very point. Husbands and wives fell to leave their parents. We see this physically, emotionally, financially. First loyalties are not established and it causes problems they therefore if you don't leave it becomes very difficult to cleave and so both of them go together the goal in this leaving and cleaving is to become what one flesh with each other this one flesh emphasizes the sexual union in marriage and of course this one flesh union is much more than sex. We know that if you're married already. We understand that, but listen to me. It is never less than sex. In fact, the very purpose of sex is to express, it is to deepen the one flesh union between a man and a woman in marriage. Now, I will also say that the same is not true of gay sex. Two men or two women cannot become one flesh in the same way that God designed a man and woman to become one flesh. Biologically impossible. True, they can have a, quote, union of sorts. But it is not the kind of union that is uniquely possible with a man and a woman in marriage. This is why God's boundaries even for marriage and it includes for sex is between one man and one woman for one lifetime in a covenant relationship called marriage. Notice the concluding comment about Adam and Eve here in verse 25. It says, and they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. A beautiful, beautiful picture right here. Beautiful statement at the end of creation. In fact, we're going to see next Sunday that this statement gets turned upside down because of sin. The naked condition of Adam and Eve, our minds immediately go to their appearance. And that is true. There is truth to that, that it describes their unclothed physical appearance right now in the Garden of Eden. They are both physically naked. But it has much more implications than that. It also refers to the transparency that existed in their marriage relationship. In other words, they hid nothing from each other. It is all out on the table with each other. Nothing is hidden under the table, in the closet, and swept under the rug. You say, why were they not ashamed? Because there was no reason for them to be ashamed. I mean, there was no sin, there was no shame in their marriage. 
Let me tell you, their marriage at this point in time, right here, it was holy, it was righteous, and it was good. Their marriage was a gift of God for the glory of God. This was God's design for the first marriage, and it is still God's design for all marriages today. Why? Because marriage is God's doing and not man's. And we see this when, number five, God joined Adam and Eve together in marriage. When Jesus quoted God's vision of marriage in Mark chapter 10, he added a comment that exploded like thunder in verse 9 when Jesus says, Therefore, therefore, in light of what God did in creation with marriage, in light of God's design, God's boundaries of marriage, what we see in the first marriage, in light of that, Jesus now comes over here and he says, Therefore, here's the implication of all this. Notice it. What God has joined together, let not man separate. John Piper, again, quoting from his book, This Momentary Marriage, writes, When a couple speaks of their vows, it is not a man or a woman or a pastor who is the main actor. God is. God joins a husband and a wife into a one flesh union. God does that. The world does not know this, which is one of the reasons why marriage is treated so casually. And Christians often act like they don't know it either which is one of the reasons marriage in the church is not seen as the wonder, as the beauty that it is. The implication here is clear. Just as God joined Adam and Eve together in marriage, he joins every husband and wife together in marriage. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That includes the husband and the wife. Let not them separate and dissolve the marriage. Foundationally, marriage is a gift of God that we are called to honor and we are called to uphold for all peoples, for all times. Which brings us to point number two here, because that's the foundation. But ultimately, what is that foundation for? This is it right here. Marriage is for the glory of God. So display it. This purpose was not fully revealed, though, until Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and instituted the church. After all of this, the Bible looks back at the institution of marriage and declares in Ephesians chapter 5, 31 and 32, listen to it, the word should sound familiar to you. Paul is again, he's quoting Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. In other words, from the very beginning, there has been a mysterious and profound purpose for marriage, and now Paul is opening up that mystery to us, and it's this. Notice it in your notes. God's purpose for marriage, meaning your purpose for your marriage. Marriage is designed by God to display his glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that no other act, event, or institution does. So get this. When God made man, and then he made woman, and then he brought them together in marriage, he wasn't simply rolling the dice, he wasn't drawing straws or flipping a coin. He was painting for us a very glorious picture. God's purpose from the very beginning was to display his glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's using marriage to illustrate his sacrificial and unconditional love for his people. Thus, God created marriage not as an end, but as a means to an end. You say, what is that end? It's the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this means God created the marriage relationship to point us to something. And that something is to a greater, more significant reality. God wants to give the whole world an illustration of something that is seen in marriage, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that not awesome? I mean, as Christ followers, it's like, whoa, man, my marriage does something here. My marriage, when lived out God's way, it visually demonstrates to a lost and dying world in need of Jesus Christ that God loves them. And God is for them 
through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whoa, blow me away, because now my marriage has much more meaning than just my wife doing this for me or my husband doing that for me. My marriage has gospel purpose and gospel implications. And this is why Paul says then at the end of Ephesians 5 that marriage pictures Christ's relationship to the church. And you're like, well, what is Christ's relationship to the church? Where are the church? Christ is in heaven. What is his relationship to it all? The church is called the bride of Christ. You know how Christ loves his bride? Oh, he loves his bride, let me tell you. Much more than we can imagine. He died for his bride. And he will never, never leave his bride. And the ultimate purpose of marriage is to put that kind of relationship on display, which brings glory to God. In other words, in our marriages, we as spouses, we are to love like Christ loved. We are to serve like Christ served. And we are to never leave our marriages and our spouses because Christ will never do that to us. And so how is this relationship of Christ and his church portrayed? The Bible explains, saying in verses 23 and 25, For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. God designs husbands to be the very reflection of Christ's love for the church in a way they relate to their wives. And God designs wives to be a reflection of Christ's love for, of the church's love for Christ in the way they relate to their husbands. What a profound and powerful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ in marriage. This means the basic roles, then, of a husband and a wife are not interchangeable. The husband displays the sacrificial love of Christ's headship, and the wife displays the submissive role of Christ's body, the church. And the mystery of marriage is that God had this purpose in mind from the very beginning when he created man, male and female, and then joined them together in marriage. This is why God created marriage. This is why marriage still exists today. Marriage is a gift of God for the glory of God. Again, I understand we live in a culture where most people, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, they think their vision is this of marriage, that marriage exists to honor my feelings and to further my happiness. But hopefully, you have seen a different vision, a biblical vision of marriage, a gift of God for the glory of God. How many of you that are married remember your wedding vows? Oh, that's not too bad, 20% of you. I remember standing on this very platform. This pulpit was not here. My wife and I were standing right here face to face, and my dad was standing right here, and he's the one that married us. 27 years ago. And I remember looking into my wife's eyes and telling her, I, Bruce, take you, Darla, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for in sickness and in, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Staying married till death do us part. Man, that is a sacred promise I made to my wife. I made it before our guests, but most of all, I made it before God. I made that promise because I love my wife, and I want to spend the rest of my life with her in marriage. But the reality is this. 
My feelings of love for my wife are often like a roller coaster. Way up some days, and then I come crashing down other days, and most days it's somewhere in between. And for this reason, I leave you with this truth. Staying married is not about, quote, staying in love. It's about staying true to your covenant promise to stay married. Now, please understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying love is not important in marriage. What I am saying, it's not what's most important to staying married. It's about staying true to your covenant promise to stay married no matter what. And that is only possible through the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And this is why we need Jesus in our marriages. Because too often, if your marriage is like my marriage, sin and selfishness rules my heart, and therefore it rules my marriage. Who's with me on that, or am I the only one? And so we desperately, oh, this whole church, we desperately need the forgiveness that Jesus offers us in the gospel, and we desperately need the power of the gospel to stay married till death do us part. Marriage is a gift of God for the glory of God. And here's the deal. Staying married is for the glory of God too. Because Jesus will never leave his bride. And that's what we are called to display in our marriages. Let's pray. Man, if you're here this morning and you're struggling in your marriage, I want to encourage you to not just duke it out, not just walk out, but to turn to God and trust him in restoring your marriage. And if you're here and you're doing well in your marriage, things are going good in your marriage, don't just pat each other on the back. Turn to God and give him praise. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage. Help us to see and uphold your vision of marriage. We lift up all marriages here today in this auditorium, and we ask that you would strengthen each one through the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. May you give us the grace that we need to stay true to our covenant promise to stay married to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.